Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. National protests surrounding racial injustice and the most recent murders of innocent people have reminded us to acknowledge those lost by speaking their names. Later, we'll hear about a project that honors recently discovered unmarked graves in the African-American grounds of Atlanta's historic Oakland Cemetery. And today marks a momentous occasion in African-American history. Juneteenth is an annual observance commemorating the end of enslavement in the United States. The Atlanta History Center has offered a rich array of programming each year and will continue the tradition with an array of virtual events as the center remains closed for public health concerns. We'll hear about the many online offerings now from historian Dr. Kalinda Lee, along with Kate Whitman, the VP of Author Programs and Community Engagement for the Atlanta History Center. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. The name Juneteenth refers to the month of June and an abbreviation for 19th. Please tell us what the holiday commemorates and the history of its celebrations. So the history of Juneteenth is really quite interesting. When the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Abraham Lincoln, uh, many people think that that quote, freed the slaves, but it really did no such thing because, of course, uh, the southern states and the Confederacy were in open rebellion against the federal government. So they were certainly not listening to anything that Abraham Lincoln had to say, and most especially not about ending the ownership of other human beings, um, which was the central cause of the war to begin with. So what happened was that it wasn't until the war was actually over in April of 1865 that African-Americans who were held in bondage were effectively free. That is, most of them were no longer enslaved. However, it took some time for the news to be transmitted. You have to remember that this is a period of time when African-Americans were forbidden by law um, from reading and writing in most states, and that includes both enslaved and free people. And uh, we certainly were not in any kind of information age like we are now. So it took quite some time for the news to travel. It's also the case that particularly out west, there were many people who were still engaged um, as Confederates fighting, despite the fact that the war was officially over, for their lost cause. And finally, there were people who were holding people in bondage who certainly knew that the slave system had been abolished, but who were no, in no mood, certainly, to uh, let folks know and emancipate the African-Americans who they had been enslaving. And so it wasn't until June 19, 1865, a full two months, two months and, and some, 
after the war was over, that the last of those learned that they were, in fact, emancipated as a consequence of the outcome of the war. And that's where the, the term Juneteenth comes from. So a full two months after the official end of the Civil War and two years after the 13th Amendment. That's right. Astonishing. Is this holiday taught in schools, specifically in Georgia, I'm wondering? It has not been taught in schools in Georgia uh, officially as part of the curriculum. Kate and I share the joy, the responsibility, the burden (laughs) of reviewing eighth grade textbooks a few years ago, I think it was now. And um, at that time, it's still in new textbooks. Uh, It still was not included. In fact, in some ways, unfortunately, the textbook industry and uh, the curricula around the nation have moved backwards rather than forward in terms of fully Uh, including African-American history and a full perspective of U.S. history. So, for example, there are mandates from legislatures, um, and unfortunately, Georgia is among them. Texas is probably the most notorious for really still trying to question whether slavery was the central cause of the Civil War, which we know now that it was, um, based on lots and lots of evidence. There are still some mandates from state legislatures, which are, of course, political rather than academic, to call the Civil War the war between the states, to talk about the war of northern aggression and such. So, unfortunately, this is not a story that has been well taught, although it is certainly well documented. And we are really excited uh, to be able to share this story in its fullness. And I think I will certainly speak for myself in saying that I have been thrilled to see how interested people have become across the nation of late to explore the history of Juneteenth and commemorate it and really celebrate it because certainly the end of human enslavement is something to be celebrated. How do people celebrate? Are there Juneteenth traditions? Historically, there have been some interesting traditions and then there are some contemporary twist on things. So I think I'll talk a little bit about the historical framework, and then I'll let Kate share a little bit about what we've been doing at the Atlanta History Center over the past several years to commemorate this occasion uh, contemporarily. Historically, there are two occasions that African Americans often celebrated to commemorate the end of enslavement. One of them was Juneteenth, and the other is something called Emancipation Day, Um, and that was often celebrated in January. Um, Juneteenth had been more of a Western tradition because, in fact, this June 19th um, telling, this learning of of emancipation um, happened in Texas. So it had been a Western tradition. And people celebrated in the ways that people often celebrate in this country with, with barbecues and cookouts and parades and speeches to commemorate that history in Georgia, uh, along the coast, in South Carolina in in particular, people held uh, marches on squares. Interestingly, often public squares that were otherwise really forbidden for Black Black Americans to access during the Jim Crow period, but that were kind of given over because they knew that people were insistent about it for Emancipation Day, and in some instances, Juneteenth. In Atlanta, in particular, we have a celebration of Emancipation Day that happened in January of every year. And the biggest site of those Emancipation Day celebrations was Big Bethel, African Methodist Episcopal Church on Auburn Avenue. There are some wonderful documents of um, Emancipation Days from Big Bethel, certainly dating to like 1906 subsequently. And there were oratorical contests. Uh, that was a really big uh, thing that happened where people would give speeches about the rate of progress, about hopes for the future. Um, these were often oratorical contests for children. Um, there were speeches, and again, people shared meals. Sometimes there was parading, although not necessarily always in January. Uh, but it was a great tradition in the Atlanta area. And in fact, there's a really famous speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave during one of those celebrations in 1957, uh, when he talked about why African-Americans could not wait, could not sustain the slow pace of change, um, and really foretold 
of his future as an activist at that time. So yeah, there's a there's a really great and stunning tradition throughout the country of celebrating emancipation, although that occurred at different times in different places. You mentioned that picture you have and information surrounding the big Bethel AME church celebration in 1906. There's an illustration of that on your blog post for Juneteenth. 1906 was the year of horrific race riots in Atlanta. And our country now is in this national reckoning. Would you discuss why some African Americans choose to celebrate Juneteenth instead of July 4th, Independence Day? Absolutely. So 1906 was absolutely, will be a year of infamy forever in Atlanta's history because of what is commonly understood as the Atlanta race riots. I think a more accurate way to really characterize what happened in, in 1906 would would be to call it, as the late historian Cliff Kuhn um, named it, the, the White Riots or Black Massacres, because this was not an instance where, you know, folks decided to take up arms against one another because of race. But instead, what really happened was that in the wake of emancipation and reconstruction, um, white Southerners were angry and frustrated about a change in what they perceived to be a proper racial hierarchy. They saw African-Americans agitating for voting rights. Um, They'd seen during Reconstruction African-Americans voting and even occupying elected office. There was a growing prosperity among African-Americans, and they were frustrated by that. And the newspapers began to, the press began to gin up these really incredibly hyperbolic and incendiary headlines about the, quote, liberties that African-Americans and particularly African-American men were taking. So this notion that African-American men were were dangerous and that they needed to be controlled and that a proper racial hierarchy needed to be reinstituted. And in particular, um, in the year 1906, they started to really push around this notion that white, uh, excuse me, that black men were a, a danger to white women, and that white men had a responsibility to protect white womanhood from from black men. Um, and finally, this all blew up with uh, accusations that a black man had first grabbed and kissed, supposedly, and then later it was you know, even further exaggerated into uh, assaulted a white woman. And people were on soapboxes on street corners, calling white men out of their homes and businesses to defend the race against black people who were supposedly running amok um, because of the power that they were accessing as free people in the United States and particularly in Atlanta. And so mobs gathered and started attacking people, pulling people off of streetcars, um, running into businesses, into barber shops, into hotels, and pulling Black folks out, men, women, and children. And the reality is that in the wake of that, at least 125 African Americans were killed. And so that is also a moment that really isn't well taught, um, although I think it has a lot to teach us. And it it is also a moment where we know from the the historical record that law enforcement, which was all white at the time, African-Americans were not hired to be a part of the police force um, at any level, was complicit. Law enforcement was complicit with these attacks against African-Americans. And so um, this notion of complete and utter vulnerability and the, the notion that people could be attacked with impunity and that there would be no redress was certainly well situated in the history of this country at that time. That does not create uh, for people, those kinds of behaviors don't create a sense of patriotism and allegiance to the nation. So the idea that you would want to go celebrate the 4th of July as this great symbol of freedom and and patriotism didn't really make sense for a lot of African-Americans who didn't feel like the founding of this nation really 
symbolized anything for them except for hundreds of years of bondage and vulnerability and attack. So you find that lots of folks instead opted to celebrate Juneteenth. Certainly there was a lot of participation in Emancipation Day, but all of those traditions began to wane as African-Americans made their first and second great migrations out of the South, where those traditions were really well situated right, and, and, and linked to community, and moved to the North and Western cities in search of work and new sorts of opportunities for hopefully economic advancement and an end to racism. Unfortunately, they didn't find an end to that, but they were certainly seeking better lives when they left the American South. Um, in search of those things in other places. And so those traditions began to just become much more diffuse and they weren't celebrated in quite the ways that they had been before. What we're seeing now is a return to many of those traditions and an acknowledgement that while there is still much struggle to undertake, the, the battles have certainly not been won to accomplish equity in this country. Folks also need to remember and attach themselves to reasons to celebrate, reasons to have hope, reasons to find joy. That's a human need. And Juneteenth represents that for many, many people. So lots of people who had never heard of Juneteenth before are excitedly kind of reaching for that, that opportunity to celebrate the endurance, but also the, the hope and the creativity and the, the tenacity to continue the struggle that African-Americans feel. Dr. Kalinda Lee, Atlanta History Center's VP of Historical Interpretation and Community Partnerships. After a short break, we'll be back with more about the History Center's special lineup of virtual events for Juneteenth. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Life. On WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation about Juneteenth with Dr. Kalinda Lee, the Atlanta History Center's VP of Historical Interpretation and Community Partnerships. She's joined by the History Center's VP of Author Programs and community engagement, Kate Whitman, whom we hear first. We are doing what we call a Juneteenth care package. So it will be sent to everyone on our mailing list, but then it is also available on our website on the, at the museum's at home page. So it starts with Dr. Kalinda Lee's blog post that you already mentioned, which is great. I think a lot of people have heard of Juneteenth, but don't really know what it is. And so it's a great place to start to have Kalinda tell us a little bit about it. So that's the first thing on the Museums at Home page, that blog. We also asked our friends at Karis Books and More to do a reading list. I don't know if you've been watching the New York Times bestseller list, but books about African-American history and the fight for civil rights and human rights are, are at the top of the list right now. So it um, is so great to see and it's encouraging that people are looking to understand this history and this current moment that we're in. So our friends at Karis Books and More did a great and very thorough reading list. And there's things for young readers, sort of middle grade readers, and then for adults as well. And so we have a link to all of their recommendations. 
Um, we also, a big part of our Juneteenth celebration has always been genealogy and sort of tracing your African-American roots. And so um, we uh, have a video of Emma Davis Hamilton in conversation with our very own Sue Verhoff talking about how to use the Freedmen's Bureau records to trace your African-American roots, your roots from post-Civil War and Reconstruction era. So it's a great guide about where to start, where to start when you're looking for your family. We also have a lot of great activities for younger people, family-focused fun, as we call it. That's been one of the best things about our Juneteenth celebration over the years is to see multi-generational families come to the History Center for this weekend. And so we wanted to make sure there were activities for young people to do with their parents or grandparents over the weekend. There is an animated comic strip called Super Spies, and kids can decode a secret message as some of the spies in the Civil War did. Um, there's an interactive map to trace where the colored troops, the United States colored troops, some of the battles that they were involved in. There is a music playlist with inspirational tunes from Sam Cooke and Nina Simone to more current people like Beyonce. And then the National Center for Civil and Human Rights did a story time for us as well. And then Kalinda found other organizations who had done really great resources as well. So she kind of curated a list of some other things to look out for. So we are certainly sad to not be joining together this weekend to commemorate Juneteenth, but I think we've got something pretty good for people to look at this weekend. Kate, would you talk about the Civil Rights Toolkit? Yeah, that is also featured on our Museum at Home page. We have a really fantastic staff of museum interpreters who are creative in ways that I just, every time I see the work that they produce, I'm, I'm really impressed. But illustrators and actors and um, the toolkit has, I think there are several different lessons. One is a Freedom March. Kalindra, help me remember some of the other activities they've done. Let's see, we've got the Children's Crusade that explores the Children's March in Birmingham. We've got some interactive activity, Rhythm John, so that kids can engage, sort of watch this video and do some sing-along to understand a little bit about freedom songs for people who are self-emancipating, so people who are running away, how they share those codes and things like that. We've got a museum theater piece, essentially, that tells the story of the Negro Leagues from the perspective of a baseball bat <laughs> that bore witness. We have some activities around uh, making a recipe from West African traditions that were brought with enslaved people to the American South. There's all kinds of things that include, you know, both kind of traditional, what you would think of as kind of traditional academic lessons, to um, singing, to theater, to gardening, to cooking. So there's really, there's such a wide array of activities. Will there be a link to that civil rights toolkit along with the Juneteenth offerings? It is actually all at um, our Museum at Home page. So the current Museum at Home page links directly to all of this great Juneteenth content, and then directly under that, so it's the same link, we'll have all of those educational resources, including the Civil Rights Toolkit. So yeah, it's, it's all in the same place, so it's easy to find. The toolkit also talks about what grade levels it's appropriate for, so that's helpful too. I think that Kate might be a little bit reluctant to toot her own horn, but I wanted to also mention that in this time of being kind of together alone, Kate has continued our um, author talk program. And there are a number of author talks and lectures that are a part of that that have also been recorded. I would very much encourage people to engage with that as well, because I think that that continues the conversation about not only U.S. history, but also its continuing significance in terms of emancipation and full equity in this country. I commend you for all of your programming at the center. And Kate, the author series is 
certainly among the highlights and has made the History Center a real destination for book lovers and readers. Last year, CNN stated that all but four states recognize Juneteenth as a state holiday or observance. Have there been any attempts to make it a national holiday? There have been attempts to make Juneteenth a national holiday. I think the first area, municipality, that I remember uh, making Juneteenth an official holiday was uh, Washington, D.C. I might have that wrong, but I'm pretty certain that I remember that correctly. The, the capital city right next to the seat of federal government was at least one of the very first places that suggested that we needed to celebrate not just the birth of the nation on July 4th, but that we needed to celebrate the, the doctrinal birth of freedom in the United States, the, the moment when it finally was the case that at least in terms of law, it was no longer permissible for people to not be free in the United States. You know, honestly, Lois, I think that my response to why this is not a federal holiday, and quite frankly, my response to why there are states that continue to resist making it a state holiday it is quite simply racism. The notion that this is something that is worthy of celebration by everyone, I don't think is reasonable to contest in the year 2020. But there are many people who continue to assert that full equality for everyone in this nation is not a value that we all share. Dr. Kalinda Lee is the Atlanta History Center's VP of Historical Interpretation and Community Partnerships. She was joined by Kate Whitman, the Center's VP of Author Programs and Community Engagement. There will be more information about the Atlanta History Center's virtual events for Juneteenth on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is WABE Atlanta. When the nation shut down in March because of the pandemic, the Atlanta Opera was midway through its run of George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. The piece is often called the Great American Opera. Yet, 85 years after its premiere, Porgy and Bess continues to raise questions about racial representation and cultural appropriation. Bass Morris Robinson sang the role of Porgy in the Atlanta Opera's three March performances. He is an internationally renowned opera singer who happens to live here in Atlanta. When I spoke with Morris Robinson in early March, he explained why he initially turned away from the role. When I came into the business early on, a lot of the veterans that had been down this path said, stay away from those types of roles because the natural assumption is you're an African-American, you have a deep voice, you can sing Old Man River, you can sing Porgy. And once you've established yourself as someone that does that, no one really at the time had the vision to see you cast as other things. So I stayed away from it for those reasons. My issue with it nowadays is not as similar as it was before. I've established myself for nearly 20 years as someone that sings German and Italian repertoire. But now it's about perpetuating stereotypes. It's about images that we don't even try to but need to distance ourselves away from on the stage. There has to be other material that can depict us in a more positive sense. And so I struggle with that. The one thing that keeps me with Porgy and Bess is I love the message. I love the story. I love the character of Porgy because he is the most respected. He is the stalwart of the community. He is the person that people look up to. So there is dignity in playing those types of roles. But I do think that there is a time where we have to say, you know what? we got to find other things. To say that a white guy wrote this story about Negro life, I've changed my mindset about that because in talking with the scholar Naomi Andre, you know, he was Jewish. 
So he wasn't really favorably upon as much as someone else would have been in the 1920s and 30s. So, but that doesn't mean that it's truly what we are. He did a wonderful job of depicting what he heard and what he saw. And I respect his musicianship and I love the music. But the images, I think, that are being perpetuated, you know, we have to deal with that in a positive sense and find other material that represents us more adequately and accurately and get away from the, uh, the Sambo and all that other stuff, you know. I know that members of your cast, along with Dr. Naomi Andre, the professor who wrote Black Opera History, Power, Engagement, had an event at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. I was on the panel. Yeah, so tell us what came out of it, please. Well, I think what came out of it was very much what I talked about just now, uh, an awareness. But the most important thing that I think people that sit in the seats need to understand is that I didn't come from the 1920s, 1930s, the 1950s, and the transformation that we have to go through to place ourselves mentally, characteristically into those positions is tough. It's a huge journey to go from that to this. And I often walk around Atlanta, and I ride through with my dad and see things that he couldn't do, restaurants where he couldn't eat, places where he couldn't go to school that have been available to me. And it's like I always walk around with this wish factor, like I wish I knew what it was like to do that and how I behave differently. I get a chance to do that on stage, and I, I can't behave like I thought I would because I have to act within the parameters of what's been written. So, you know, the psychological journey is tough even to get to that characterization on stage. So I think that's very interesting for people to understand that, you know, we are not robots. We are people with emotions and sensitivities. And in order to become what you enjoy on stage, it takes a tremendous mental transformation. Let's talk about the music. Every tune in this <clears throat> opera is memorable, dare I say unforgettable. And it's no surprise that jazz, pop, and classical artists have recorded songs from Porgy and Bess. What are the musical high points? I can't think of one thing that says that I love more than the next. I mean, every time you hear one, first of all, it starts off in summertime. Hard to beat that. You know, it's one of the most beautiful, most lyrical pieces ever written, and we all know it from Nina Simone to Sammy Davis Jr. to Frank Sinatra, everyone has done that tune, I mean, even jazz instrumentalists. So it sets the tone right there. You got a woman is a sometime thing. You got it ain't necessarily so. You got best you is my woman. You got I love you porgy. How can you forget that? The hits go on and on and on and on. So I think I don't have a musical highlight. I think that I just enjoy the wave of the process. Even on stage, I enjoy hearing all these things, you know. Best you is my woman. favorite moments, though, I will say, is when Bess sings the reprise of Summertime in a different key, because at that moment, you know, she has really transformed from being what she was at the beginning of the opera to being a mom. It's always staged where she's by herself, and she's really just kind of 
in that moment. I think that's the most beautiful moment, singularly for me, because, of course, I'm also standing off stage ready to kill Crown at that moment to kind of solidify that which she's already claimed. So that, to me, is the most powerful moment. The playwright Lorraine Hansberry noted that African Americans have suffered great wounds from great intentions. Does the music of Porgy and Bess heal some of the wounds? I had a colleague tell me that for everything that happens in your life, there's a line in Porgy and Bess that can relate to it. And because of that, I don't know if there's healing, but there's certainly relatability. Not to just every line, but every character on that stage that has a part. You have Serena, who is the, the backbone, the religious matriarch mother figure who lost her husband, but she's very religious, and she kind of holds it together. You have Mariah, who isn't taking much off of anybody, and she's kind of the enforcer type. You got Porgy, who's the cerebral, who's the leader, who's the man, even though he's crippled. You have Crown, who's kind of the bully and the jerk around, but he's part of the community. You have Sporting Life, who's kind of the weasel. You got Bess, whoever loves and embraces, who goes through a journey, who comes back, and actually it's part of the church and part of the religious services. It has a huge journey. You Everyone on that stage with any part, you have Jake who is working really hard because he's going to send his kid to college, and he's saving that money right away. We know that guy. We know his wife. We know the kid. You know, we all have those things to relate to. So I think that the element of humanity that is displayed in this opera, coupled with the beautiful music, makes it attractive and makes it relatable to a vast amount of people. So that's the beauty of this show. Bass Morris Robinson sang the role of Porky. In the Atlanta Opera's production of Porgy and Bess this past March. For this Juneteenth observance, Flux Projects presents Remembrance as Resistance, Preserving Black Narratives by Charmaine Minifield, a project that honors recently discovered unmarked graves in the African-American grounds of Atlanta's Oakland Cemetery. Due to COVID-19, the physical installation has been postponed until Juneteenth, 2021. But Flux Projects and the artist will celebrate this year with virtual content. Charmaine Minifield is with us now via Zoom from a remote location. Charmaine, welcome back, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lois, for having me. Last year, when we spoke with you about Juneteenth, you were working with the Geechee Gullah Ring Shouters, who provided a preview for your Oakland Cemetery installation. Would you please tell us about the Ring Shout and how this project celebrates that tradition? The Ring Shout is a traditional African-American worship practice that was created during enslavement and I'm saying as an act of resistance, because it created an insured community by gathering its community or worshipers inside of a praise house, a small wooden structure where they would stand in circle and uh, through call and response, uh, sing and worship, but also move in circle. And that was the ring part and the movement was the shout. But because we were, we were not allowed to have drums, which was an effort of dismantling community and communication again, uh, we instead created, I, I'm saying a new technology by allowing for the floors of these small wooden structures to become our communal drums. And we would beat our feet. We would, our, we would step in, in rhythmic pattern in circle, moving the whole room in, in, in worship. And this ceremony is, has obvious origins out of West Africa. And that again is evidence of our African traditions and therefore an act of resistance against erasure and the survival of our traditions. How long have you been working on this? 
Wow. You know, I've been working on this project for this particular project now for two years. Flux Projects put out a call for projects when they were in Grant Park and, and I submitted and um, the committee and Ann decided, Ann Dennington with Flux Projects decided that this was a standalone uh, project. So we began there and we started to form partnerships around the concept in the city, Oakland Foundation uh, at the cemetery, Oakland Cemetery Foundation is one of our main partners, Emory University, who's been my host as a artist in residence for this academic year, while I work from the Rose Library archives on research within the project, and many more. The National Black Arts is, a, is one of our partners, the city of Atlanta. And all of those, those support systems all came in place. And finally, we launched uh, Juneteenth of 2019. And we've been developing the work now with our artistic collaborators since. And just as we were about to literally begin construction of the Praise House, we, the pandemic broke out. And we've shifted gears a, a bit. But I think that this is a really timely response. Uh, to not only the stories of those um, those forgotten, but you know, an inspiration for those who are holding up justice today. I read that in 2017, the historic Oakland Foundation began phased restoration of the cemetery's three and a half acre African American burial grounds. Most of these plots did not have a headstone or even a marker. Tragic, shocking. Do you have any updates as to where Oakland Cemetery is with the restoration process? The installation of the Praise House and our um, production around its presence this year, Juneteenth uh, 2020, was to mark the completion of their um, restoration of the African-American section um, of, the, of the cemetery. It comes after the research by Georgia State uh, using a particular technology uh, found those unmarked graves in that section. And then the you know, acknowledgement that those that were displaced from the original slave square when the cemetery was smaller were connected to those 800 once forgotten now reclaimed names so i'm really grateful that from georgia state but also that the cemetery has taken this approach to restoring the african-american section and holding up this these names and these uh, stories um, this way and willing to support this idea of erecting our praise house in their honor. Today at 2 p.m., the renowned rapper and writer Tony Blackman will present a live women's cipher. What does that entail? Well, much like the ring shout, my work is community-based, collaborative, and collective. I've been using the hashtags women in prayer, prayer circles, um, of course, ring shout. And in that same vein, I've invited contemporary Black women creatives to consider their own artistic expression as an iteration of the ring shout. Much like the coding of freedom quilts, I see certain elements of African-American artistic expression as, um, as, as a coding that proclaims and preserves our Blackness, our ashe, our identity. And like the ring shout, like those freedom quilts, I feel that uh, the cipher is just that, a freestyle a collective gathering um, of, uh, in this case, women, just like the ring shout, of ideas and intentions. And if you've ever had a chance to sort of witness a cipher, it is um, this, you know, accumulative voice of women's um, and, and 
and their poetry or their spoken word or their rap or hip hop or their uh, song. Um, and, uh, and we'll be doing that with Tony Blackman. Tony Blackman is, she's a force uh, within her own right, um, internationally acclaimed, have been doing uh, youth leadership and uh, community uh, social justice work through hip hop for, for years. And I'm going to take a moment to acknowledge that I am in the Gambia and we will hear prayer in the background, which I think is really in keeping with the moment. So I'll continue. But so Tony Blackman has invited artists um, to join the cypher from all over the world, Australia, Nairobi. Um, I'll be here in the Gambia, Senegal, and then also on all over the country. So New York, LA, someone is um, of course representing Atlanta. And then we have a songstress out of uh, Chapel Hill, UNC, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So um, that'll all happen live through Zoom on um, today at 2 p.m. There will be a virtual performance of a ring shout created by you and choreographer Julie B. Johnson. How did you coordinate that for virtual presentation? You know, Lois, that project comes specifically in response to my being here in the Gambia, separated from family, not able to return, and finally settling in to where I am. I began to pray. I think that that was out of response to all that was happening in the world, but also specifically, I, I lost a 17-year-old niece to COVID-19. Oh, and, I'm um, so sorry. Thank you. Thank you for those words. It, it rocked me. It rocked our family, of course. But it felt like my ancestors were returning into my body to comfort me and heal me through movement. And so I called on my own ancestral memory of the ring shout, but my actual lived memory of shouting when I was raised up in the Pentecostal church. So I allowed for my body to move during those times. And um, I began to actually send her notes and images of myself dancing to encourage her to be active. Um, my sister. And that was the place that I started to think about um, the ring shout as a resistance inside of what is all happening today. Um, a healing, an act of healing um, and grounding as an African-American woman and for our community. But um, also, you know, as everything began to unfold, it just, the, the lessons of our ancestors continued to apply so um, I'm grateful. So Julie B. Johnson has um, a project called Embodied Memory. And I called her and told her I wanted to explore this idea of embodied memory uh, through all of this. And that's what this project, uh, this part of the project um, comes from. Um, there will be women in all parts of the country and I here in the Gambia, nine women who have um, recorded beautiful interpretations of the ring shout rhythm and um, that those nine images are being crafted into a visual um, um, collage of moving images by my collaborator Kimberly Benz um, and that digital visual will, will uh, drop on Flux Project's website at midnight on uh, Thursday night, Friday morning of Juneteenth and run um, for the weekend for folks to, to enjoy. And we're encouraging people to hashtag and, <laughs> and all of those instructions are on the website uh, to, to actually upload their own movement prayers of the ring shout as a collective uh, inside of all that's happening today. Charmaine, thank you for your beautiful work, for the meaning you provide and the hope that you inspire. I hope you get to return home soon. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for your prayers. Charmaine Minifield, 
Atlanta artist, activist, and arts administrator. Her virtual installation, Remembrance as Resistance, Preserving Black Narratives, will be online today at fluxprojects.org. Flux Projects will also present a live cipher with renowned rapper and writer Tony Blackman today at 2 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Atlanta artists defacing their own murals with the goal of saving lives during the pandemic. Our theme music is The First Time. Written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Won't you follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S? R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. And please do listen to our new podcast wherever you subscribe. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.